What up, guys? Welcome to episode 10 of the Deskbound Therapy Podcast. I'm here at the EMS Sports Medicine Clinic with Dr. Dominique Hiramath. We're going to just talk a little bit about sports, training, recovery, and she's going to go ahead and quickly introduce herself and tell you a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Dominique Carmath, uh, like David had mentioned, and today we'll be going over recovery strategies and how to mitigate um, injury regarding uh, training um, and specifically related to delayed onset muscle soreness. Can you give us a little bit of background on your, uh, your, ex- your history in sports and in school and all that stuff and your education? Sure. So I grew up playing junior tennis in Canada, and then I played internationally as well. Um, Did pretty well, and that got me on a full scholarship to Rice University for tennis. And then from there, uh, I was inspired by a sports chiropractor who uh, helped me get through a major injury in uh, university tennis. Um, And yeah, that's what inspired me to be here right now pursuing uh, sports chiropractic. So I've, uh, I'm a doctor of chiropractic right now and pursuing a residency program in sports sciences to specialize. They talk a lot about how um, multi-sport athletes growing up are like have the lowest risk for injury. Um, were you a multi-sport athlete or did you always go right into tennis? No, I was a multi-sport athlete as well. Um, I started with skiing, swimming, and tennis. Those were the three major ones. Competed in all three and then at around age 12, I'd say, uh, tennis took the took the lead there and then solely play tennis just because it is an early specialization sport. So was there anyone or anything that influenced you to make that choice for specializing in your sport? Uh, My parents made that decision for me, but I really did enjoy it. So I guess they got lucky with that decision. So what was it like growing up in terms of strength and conditioning? Was it mostly like fundamentals like throughout until you get to the pro stage? Or are there a lot of similar things that you progress in your career? For me specifically, we did a lot of uh, strength and conditioning training when I turned around age 15, 16. Um, Prior to that, there wasn't much uh, fitness or strength and conditioning involved. Um, However, to some degree now that uh, I'm in the healthcare field specifically specializing in sports, um, I would say there should be some degree of uh, fitness and a little bit of strength and conditioning involved in the younger athletes as well. So aside from your parents, was there anyone else that you looked up to in tennis, like a like a, one of your favorite player or favorite like players or in the in the field? Yes, I'd say so. I'm probably not very out of the ordinary. Roger Federer was always who I looked up to, and still to this day. Um, but yeah, I just really admire his composure on the court, and um, regardless of what the conditions are, what the score is, he's always composed and fighting to win and he does a pretty good job at it. So as a sports chiropractor, how do you feel about his ability to stay healthy throughout these years? He hasn't had any major injuries or setbacks. Do you think that's attributed to his training or to his mindset? Or is there obviously some recovery strategies we're going to talk about in a bit? Well, for him specifically, I'm not sure. Uh, We've never spoken, but uh, judging from just seeing him play and being injured so rarely, he seems like one of those types that is either doing a really good job with uh, strength and conditioning training programs and injury prevention training programs, and his body is just made for the sport. But again, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, he's a legend. He really, he's really hasn't had any injuries. He's still playing into his 40s, which is obviously the goal for not just sports, but for health overall is longevity in your career, whether it be at the gym or just moving well for the rest of your life. Exactly. And he just won the Miami Open, so he's still very much up there.
Yeah, he lost to Shapovalov, lost him, which is still pretty cool. He got that far. He got to play against Roger Federer. Yeah, and we had two Canadians in the semifinals in the Miami Open, so it was very impressive. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll be there next. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I'm set with my career right now, but that would have been nice. So how about your, your time at Rice University? Was it mostly academic focus, or was it mostly for going there to, to play tennis? I'd say it was quite a balance of both. I picked the university because of its level of tennis and because of its uh, academics. I wanted a balance um, when I was going to university, and Rice really did that for me. So we were a top 20 school um, in the tennis rankings in the Division One NCAAs, and academically it's a top 17 in the United States. So I was very happy with it, and the focus was definitely both. So were you ranked before heading over to Rice University or did you compete at the national championships when you were earlier in your career, before university level? Uh, I was ranked uh, prior to university as well, both nationally and internationally. So what was it like in terms of, I know you started strength and conditioning when you were around 15, 16. What was it like over there? Because I know you mentioned you had an injury during your career and that kind of inspired you to get into sports chiropractic. Yes. So in juniors, I actually uh, rarely got injured. It was in university when uh, the volume and intensity of practices really changed. Um, and then that's when I suffered a hamstring injury um, and saw a sports chiropractor who got me back on the court when no one else could. So so what was that like in terms of your mindset? I know a lot of times athletes have these like mental battles, even for me at the gym when I'm injured, like it's, it's a lot of it's in your head. And what was it like wanting to, to get to that next level when you had to respect like your body needs to recover? The psychological aspect of it is definitely huge, especially once you're already injured. Um, so it's important from a therapeutic standpoint um, and as a chiropractor myself to address uh, the psychological uh, things that uh, patients might be going through. Um, and then from a recovery standpoint, yeah, you have to accept the fact that if you put your body through a lot of load and especially if that if your body can't uh, doesn't have the capacity to adapt to that load, then yeah, injury is going to happen and recovery is very much necessary for healing to take place. Are there any strategies you've learned in school and later in your career that you wish you knew earlier when you were playing tennis that you could have implemented to enhance your recovery? I think Rice and the healthcare team at Rice did a really good job from a recovery standpoint. Um, we did a lot of um, ice baths, sports massage was available, um, and really anything, anything else that we needed, the university did a very good job at providing. What I wish I had known, um, well, yeah, I wish I had known a little bit more about the research behind whether these recovery strategies work because hopping in an ice bath for 20 minutes isn't really a pleasant feeling. So knowing whether or not it for sure works uh, would have been nice. But apart from that, uh, I'd say I learned a lot from my education just from a recovery standpoint as well that we'll be discussing shortly. Yeah, I can't imagine going to an ice bath for 30 minutes. I struggled to do three minutes in the shower this morning, so that tells you something. Yeah. So what are some of the strategies you can do in terms of both in fitness in the gym and in tennis to manage your, your volume and overall prevent injury and just focus on optimizing your recovery? Okay, so big question. I'll address the first part regarding uh, injury prevention and managing training volume. So it's important to note that 
Regarding uh, training volume, training volume isn't the only thing involved in how you're going to be mitigating injury. Training volume, intensity, duration, and then simply what are your goals as well. Um, those are kind of the external factors. Then you have the internal factors, which is um, the, psycho the psychological uh, status of that individual, any kind of stressors that they might be having, fatigue levels, etc. These all come into play when you're categorizing the amount of load that you're putting your body through through whether it's a workout or tennis or soccer or whatever it might be. So uh, the number one thing to take note is there it's a continuum, right? So you have the load health uh, continuum and you need to make sure that for adaptations to take place for your body to get stronger or have better endurance, um, you will likely re uh, reach what's called an overreaching phase. But at the overreaching phase, uh, you also need to implement recovery, and then that's how adaptation can take place. Now, the other thing to consider as well is load and capacity. So if your your body has a certain amount of capacity from previous training sessions that you might have uh, put it through, um, and then you need to let your body recover to be able to reach the next level from that perspective. So uh, again, many factors come in. There's no... Um, like sweet spot per se of training volume and duration and intensity. It's very dependent on one, what are your goals? Uh, how are you going to get there? And then of course, what is the environment? What is your sport? And then of course, considering uh, the load afterwards, and then that's how you'll be mitigating uh, injury. And regarding recovery, so delayed onset muscle soreness, um, that's important to consider. So delayed onset muscle soreness, it's um, exercise-induced muscle damage. So you basically get damage in the muscle fibers and those proteins within uh, the muscle, and basically you get sore after you've overworked uh, your body. So some common symptoms from this, uh, you'll have reduced strength, reduced range of motion, uh, reduced proprioception, and of course just soreness with movement. This is delayed onset muscle soreness after you've gone through unaccustomed exercise. Um, and then when you're sore, that's your body's way of telling you you need to recover. So delayed onset muscle soreness isn't a bad thing. I mean, it's necessary as well for you to recognize that um, you've reached the point of overreaching in that continuum, um, and now you need to give your body time to recover. Um, to be able to reach that adaptation level. Um, so some recovery strategies, that's the second part of your question. Uh, there's a couple that have been noted in the literature for best evidence. Um, this includes um, sports massage, ice baths, uh, com compression garments as well, um, and active recovery to some degree within the first uh, six hours. These are the four major ones that um, you could be addressing for recovery. So looking at the big picture there, I think a big thing a lot of people don't do in terms of the gym or training in general is keep track of what they're doing. I think it can be very easy to overreach if you're not keeping a log of your gym and your training sessions. If you're always trying to push for those those one rep maxes or just do more than last time, it can be hard to monitor. If you literally know nothing, you're not keeping track of any data. So I think like a good first step to implement is just knowing what you're doing every time you step in the gym. A hundred percent. And like I mentioned before, you want to not only be keep, keep be keeping track of the reps, the duration, and the intensity that you're doing in your workout, 
um, but also subjective measures. Subjective measures being um, how do you feel? What was your effort level? Um, what are the stressors in your life right now? Was it uh, Were your stressors different from one week compared to the next? Because that will affect uh, how fatigued your body will be in a workout that might seem average to you. But if you're going through um, a lot more stress at that period of time, your body will go through um, more load as well. So um, important to note that it's not only the reps and intensity that you're logging, but as well have some kind of uh, chart that you're also noting what your effort level was on a scale of 1 to 10, how fatigued you felt after the workout, same thing maybe from a scale of 1 to 10, um, and make sure you're noting that as well and take both of those into consideration when you're measuring load. Yeah, I like to personally track my weight for every set as well as the RP for every single set. So that way I know I can address the warm-ups if it's too heavy and week-to-week -week really. Uh, using this RP scale allows you to, for a while it's very subjective, but once you get used to it, you can really dial in to how much more you could have pushed or how much less or where you need to push the next time. Yes, exactly. And um, the... Olympic Committee in 2016 also noted that you don't want to increase your load more than 10% week to week. So keep the increase of load under 10% as you go um, week to week progressing through your workouts. Yeah, I found that quite interesting because when I was um, in doing a little bit of gymnastics, we were always doing mixing the strength with the bodyweight stuff and it was very quickly would increase the volume and I found then I heard about this 10% rule and tried implementing it but it can be a little bit hard unless you're really nailing the data but I would say just try not to I would say look at the bigger picture in terms of increasing your training is that something you'd agree with like like increasing the training volume over two months versus like over a week something like that yes I agree with you on that also to consider is what kind of uh, athlete are you? I mean, you don't even have to be an elite athlete to consider this. I mean, listen to your body. So regardless of whether it's a very intense workout or just your average workout, you just went for a 20-minute run, whatever it might be, um, just be aware of your body and what it's telling you. And if something's hurting or something's sore, um, then make sure you're acknowledging that and giving, your giving yourself time to recover as well. Now I want to talk a little bit about what we know exactly works and specifically focus on stretching. Like, Let's talk a little bit about does it work, when to use it, when to do other sorts of strategies and what's best for the type of trainer or athlete you are. Stretching. So that's a good question because it's really a spectrum and completely dependent on, again, the type of exercise that you're doing and whether it's a uh, more of a flexibility goal or a performance goal. So let's put it into the context of delayed onset muscle soreness, for example. So you just went through an unaccustomed workout and, and um, your, your muscles are getting quite sore. At this point, stretching is not a good idea because you'd likely be inducing more muscle damage. That's what the current evidence uh, is saying that if you're already sore and you did an unaccustomed workout, stretching is not a good idea. You're going to be inducing more muscle damage. So from that perspective, use other recovery strategies like ice bath or sports massage uh, or compression garments. However, if it's a customed exercise, meaning it's exercise you're completely adapted to and used to, and your goal is to improve flexibility, then at that point, uh, stretching is a good idea. And there are many forms of stretching from dynamic, static, PNF stretching, um, again, dependent on the sport and what works for you. So just to give the listeners an example, say I did a heavy bench press workout, I got a PR in my chest and shoulders and back are really sore, does that mean I don't want to stretch the next day and afterwards I want to just wait till the soreness dies down or would it be okay to stretch the day after? 
So my question to you is, was that a usual workout that you were doing or was that an unaccustomed workout? So are we classifying unaccustomed as something that's making me like a, when you're overreaching, when you're more sore than usual? So I would say, I know it's hard to classify the amount of DOMS someone's having, but for example, say it was just like their regular soreness and not like super high out of 10, maybe like a 6 out of 10. If your soreness is quite low and the workout wasn't really that unaccustomed, you were kind of uh, used to it, then you can consider stretching, maybe some uh, light stretching to uh, reduce that soreness a bit. But again, stretching in the literature has not been shown to reduce muscle soreness, more so just to release a little bit of that tension you might be feeling. So in delayed onset muscle soreness, if you're sore for uh, a couple days, um, and again up to five, seven days you could be sore with delayed onset muscle soreness, then don't stretch. But if it's just a little bit of tightness that you're feeling after that workout, then, uh, then yes, stretching is a good idea. So what are some other strategies? I know you talk specifically on your social media about uh, recovery in between games of tennis are the what is the best evidence for like active recovery if you have to say multiple training sessions or you're in a basketball tournament or you just maybe you have a you're doing two lifts a day so regarding active recovery fatigue is also something you have to consider with active recovery so if you have let's say two workouts or two sports sessions within one day um, and they're both very intense, then you want to make sure that that active recovery is um, very low intensity. So fatigue does not come into play because you do not want to be more tired for your next set of exercise. Um, however, if you only had that one uh, workout, then active recovery may be a good idea. Maybe some uh, light jogging to uh, flush out that lactic acid. Again, active recovery only lasts for up to six hours. So it's not exactly a recovery strategy for the long term. Um, however, it is a cool down. Again, it uh, gets rid of the, that lactic acid buildup that you had from the intense workout uh, from the previous uh, session. And again, that's primarily what it's addressing. So if you're going to be implementing active recovery between two sessions, then I highly recommend it be low intensity and make sure you're not overly fatiguing uh, for the next exercise bout. And what about sleep? Sleep is a big one, especially people who, who wake up early to go to gym or they go late at night. Um, sleep is so important for recovery. Just wanted to touch upon that a little bit. Yes, so sleep, nutrition, both of those are absolutely essential for recovery. Regarding the research, they're very difficult to research because there are many uh, confounding variables that come into play, so it's difficult to study. However, I would say common sense. If you're, you should be getting a good night's sleep, allowing your body to recover from that day and, uh, and generally eating well um, as well to kind of prompt your body in that optimal state. But regarding the details, I can't answer that question. Is there a specific time frame for DOMS where it could be concerning? Say you're sore past two days after workout, would that be concerning and tell you you were overreaching too much, you need another day of recovery? Or is there is there like a general rule of thumb that people can use to gauge whether they should continue training after or if they need to see like, like a therapist if they're sore like four or five days after still after workout? So for delayed onset muscle soreness, we know it's self-limiting. So in general, if you keep it light and keep those workouts light once you're already having delayed onset muscle soreness, then it should go away within five to seven days. 
Um, however, if you're noticing a significant amount of pain that's also accustomed with swelling and redness, at that point, um, you should see a therapist, whether it's a chiropractor, a medical doctor, a physiotherapist, um, to determine whether you're going through what's called rhabdomyolysis, um, which is a death of muscle cell. Again, it's very rare, but it's important to be aware of in case you ever um, reach that severe extent of delayed onset muscle soreness where uh, muscle cell damage may or muscle cell death may actually be occurring. Yeah, that's a pretty big it's a pretty big issue. Hopefully none of our followers have any issues with that in terms of muscle soreness. So one more question about training and recovery is a lot of people like to be really strict on themselves and really hard on themselves both in training and at the gym and they, they struggle psychologically to take those rest days. They like having a day one, two, three, four strict training split and they have issues like they think they're not going to make progress if they take that extra rest day. So what is your advice for training schedules? Is it better to stay flexible? Obviously, this is... Obviously, it seems better to stay flexible, but is it better to stay flexible and listen to your body long-term, or is it okay to occasionally um, train with some moderate soreness? So regarding training multiple days and not taking any recovery days, I would I, that goes back to the load capacity recovery uh, con kind of continuum that we had discussed prior to. So for adaptation to take place, if you take your body to that overreaching uh, limit in that health continuum, you need to let it recover to reach the gains that you're looking for. So from that perspective, I highly do recommend in implementing those uh, recovery days. And that doesn't mean you have to take the whole day off, but definitely do like a really light workout session to give your body time to recover. Because again, you can't have that adaptation without your body recovering first. Yeah, some things I like to do for my rest there are just go outside, go for a walk, do something you don't usually do. Even if you're you're going around and you're, and you're walking at them all, just try to not sit on the couch for your rest day. You really want to get that blood flow to the muscles. So I like to do some, depending on my soreness, some dynamic movements. I like to do some like stretches for my back, just kind of keeping it dynamic, keeping it loose, focus on my a little bit of meditation on recovery days, some deep breathing, just to kind of relax the nervous system down again. Because a lot of thing, a big thing a lot of people don't consider is that when you're stressed out, you're going to cause more muscular tension in your body. And that's something to consider in terms of what you talked about is how stressed you are and how fatigued you are during that workout and might seem harder than it usually is. Exactly. So address both the external factors of that intensity as well as your psychological factors. And of course, recovery doesn't mean sitting on the couch the entire day. Yes, of course, keep moving, go for a walk, go for a light swim, um, stay active uh, for sure. But yeah, you don't have to completely take the entire day off, especially if you're one of those people that really wants to be constantly moving and working out the majority of the time. I used to personally have issues with taking rest days and always wanting to be in the gym. So something I've implemented is I'll I'll go every day, even if it's just to socialize or even if it's to just go through my warm-up routine. That way I'm still in there because I find when you're in the gym every day, it's hard to skip a day when you have a hard training session. You'll find a way to get there. So I, I'll, this is actually what a therapist recommends me like a few years ago is just go in and go through your warm-up, see how you're feeling, and then decide if you want to work out. Obviously, or just go and even if it's your rest day, just do a warm up, do some light mobility. Like, for example, last week I was sore after walking like 20 kilometers. I walked from all the way downtown to uptown as my active recovery day. And I just did hip cars at the gym that day. I walked to the gym, just did some hip car, shoulder cars, and just, I don't know, just chatted with my friends. 
Yeah, and that's also addressing the social component, right? I mean, it's an important part of your well-being as well and to reduce those stressors. So once you're recovered, you can go straight back to your workouts and going hard in the gym or whatever it, uh, whatever type of exercise you might be doing. So what kind of stuff did you do in terms of, obviously the, your sport was very social and you had teammates and stuff like that. Was Would you guys be doing recovery work together or would they give you homework you would do on your own? It was always together. So our workouts and, ses- and training sessions were scheduled usually around 6.30 or 7 a.m. in the morning. We would have uh, weight training or conditioning. It really varied. I think we had two days a week where we did uh, weight training and then another two days, I think it was, maybe three, where we did conditioning. So sprints um, and agility work because that's necessary for tennis as well. So so there was that component. And then regarding recovery, yeah, the whole team would either be in the ice bath or the whole team would do an active recovery light jog um, if anyone needed any sports massage or any kind of other therapeutic um, um, advice or treatment or whatever it might be, then they would get that as well. What is your stance on, on unilateral training, especially because you're a sport where it's so unilateral, like you, it's very easy to get muscular imbalances in tennis and golf and sports like that. So are there, would you recommend, so first, the first question, what, what did you do to kind of manage that when you were playing and what would you recommend for someone who goes to the gym? Like, should they implement unilateral work on top of their barbell work to just kind of prevent imbalances? So... Unilateral adaptations in sport, especially when it's uh, tennis or baseball where you're primarily only using um, one dominant side, those adaptations are going to be normal. However, again, to uh, reduce the risk of injury and again, have your body balanced, yes, I would recommend doing some unilateral uh, work as well just to, again, keep both sides uh, in play and again you those adaptations unilateral adaptations are normal um, but from an injury prevention perspective I would be addressing both sides so say for example completely unrelated to to working out for example say you're always on the computer and you're always using that right arm and it's a little bit more protracted would you do more like scapular retractions and single arm work on that side would you do say 12 reps on one side 10 on the other with the same weight is that something that could help mitigate a potential imbalance Yeah, so if your arm is mostly forward and your shoulder blade is uh, protracted like that um, for the majority of the day, then scapular stabilization exercises are a very good idea. But we also have to consider that, well, that shoulder blade is also attached to those ribs via uh, muscle and fascia, so your thoracic spine is also involved. And that, again, will come into play for addressing... um, these rehab strategies bilaterally. Um, So again, if that right side is um, overly protracted, then again, you'll want to address some thoracic uh, extension mobility work as well as scapular stabilization on both sides. When you were playing tennis, um, foam rolling wasn't as big as it was now. Like I feel like five years ago, it was just starting to come out. And now it's like, we first believe, and there wasn't much research, that it was like magical and foam rolling can get rid of all soreness and was the key to preventing injuries. I remember I was in high school and I was doing P90X2 and there was this DVD called Results in Recovery or something like that. And it was just like an hour foam rolling. And the whole time he was bragging about, oh, my fr- Tony Horner, my friend made this, discover this rumble roller and it's the magic cure and I love hitting my lats to get my shoulders nice and loose. So um, what is your stance on that and what does the current uh, research suggest? 
Regarding foam rolling, I'm not positive on the research that they have right now. However, the most common uh, recovery strategies that's most similar to foam rolling, I'd say, is sports massage. And the goal of sports massage is to increase blood flow and lymph flow, lymph flow in that area, again, to uh, increase uh, recovery and um and of course healing of that exercise induced uh, muscle damage. So from a foam rolling perspective, if, let's give another example. So you just went through an unaccustomed workout and you're realizing you're getting delayed onset muscle soreness. Again, it's uh, painful to move. You have some reduced strength and reduced range of motion. Um, then foam rolling could be an option. But Again, consider you don't want to press too hard with the foam roller to induce more of that muscle damage. So. If you know what uh, sports massage kind of uh, pressure feels like, you will probably want to match that uh, with foam rolling to, again, not induce more of that damage. So, um, so if, if it's similar to that uh, sports massage technique, then I would say foam rolling is probably a good idea for recovery. I've heard a few rule of thumbs, one from Eric Cressy, that when you're, you're rolling a muscle, specifically a large muscle like the legs, you want to consider moving slowly like one inch per second and really just letting it sink into the muscle as opposed to rolling it like a wheeling pin. Yeah, so if, again, if you just went through an accustomed exercise and you're going through this delayed onset muscle soreness, no, you don't want to beat the muscle back and forth with a foam roller. Then in that case, yes, it is a good idea to go slowly and using the foam roller and rolling it towards the heart, again, to increase that uh, blood and lymph flow back um, up to the heart. Yeah, I guess it can be hard to have research on that when it's hard to measure the efficacy of how people are actually doing the foam rolling itself because there's so many different tools and there's not really like a standard one. There's so many different densities, so many different recovery tools. There's massage balls, there's rollers. So I guess it can be hard in that sense to, to quantify how people are doing it. But a general rule of thumb is from the research I read that if you're – the best is to roll th – with it, you get the best benefits if you're rolling within 30 minutes of training. They said there's moderate reduction in DOM specifically for the legs. So that's just what I read, but there isn't too much specifically in the research on that. Yeah, I'm unfamiliar with the research for foam rolling, but I do know that um, the most recent research for sports massage is again getting that within two hours yeah. post-workout. So we're noticing some similarities between what you and I are saying. Yeah, it's interesting because not everyone has access to the sport massage. So I say... I as a general like recommendation, it's okay to try foam rolling to see if it's something that benefits your recovery and if it's not, that's okay But because not everyone has access to, to these things like sports massage. Exactly. And some other self-recovery strategies, um, compression garments are also something you could use. Um, regarding the research on compression garments, however, it's uh, quite heterogeneous, so the studies are a little bit mixed and inconsistent. However, the studies are showing that uh, compression does improve uh, or reduce delayed onset muscle soreness. But that needs to be taken with a grain of salt because the research that um, is providing the compression garments with is, again, a little bit mixed. So some limitations in those studies. Yeah, I find for me it allows me to achieve better form because I have more proprioception when I'm wearing like the compression tights and a compression shirt. For example, right now I have KT tape on my shoulder just so, just because I can, it gives me the awareness and I find the awareness really helps you in terms of how you're feeling, in terms of the circulation to the muscles. And again, maybe it's placebo, but for me, I, when I do cardio, I like wearing like these, I'm wearing like leggings today. I like having something covering my knee just because like I find when they're cold, I don't feel great. And again, that could be in my head, but as long as it works for me and I'm staying 
healthy long-term. I don't think it's a concern. No, of course not. I mean, what's wrong with placebo? Placebo is also a form of treatment, right? If it helps. And again, we've talked about it before. The psychological aspect of it is huge as well. So in itself, placebo is also a therapeutic uh, method of these recovery strategies, whether it's KT tape or something else. Are there any potential areas you see advancing in terms of recovery in the in the say five to ten years? Is there any changes you anticipate, or is there any new strategies you potentially think may be coming to life? Hmm, I haven't really thought about that. Um, I'm sure there will be some advances in these compression garments, just because uh, the research is a little bit iffy on it right now. Um, so I'm sure there will be advances in that. Um, and then as well, you have the Normatec uh, systems as well. So those large uh, compression garments that you could put on entire limbs, whether it's the arms, most often you see it on the, the legs. Ready, yeah. Exactly. The many different types of mm -hmm. uh, companies for that. But basically it's a large contraption that um, goes over the legs and, uh, and it has what's called like peristaltic compression. So the compression starts from the bottom and goes in sections and it'll slowly start the compression all the way up to what if it's the legs it'll go up uh, until the hips. And again the research in that um, there isn't much so I think that will definitely be more of a developing uh, story from a research perspective just because um, it's kind of the new it thing right now with uh, athletes and recovery. So in terms of your training, what do you currently do in terms of your training? Are you still training for sport? Do you have like a more like a kind of like a enjoyable lifestyle training now? I still really enjoy uh, playing tennis. So that I'm doing maybe not as often in the winter, maybe just two times a week. But I play competitively in uh, men's league on Sundays. And, uh, and that's been really great. And then in the summer, I'm playing every single day. Um, so that's the tennis side of it. But of course, from an injury uh, prevention standpoint, I have to keep up with my weight training and my conditioning. So um, if, I, if in the winter, I'm only playing two times a week, then um, the other three, four days, I'm going to be doing either weight training or conditioning to keep my body at par so I can continue competing uh, at a high level. So obviously the strength and conditioning is going to taper depending on where you are in your season and the volume and those factors we talked about earlier. Yes, exactly. And at the end of the day, listen to your body. So is it okay, a few more questions on recovery, is it okay, for example, like you had a really hard week in the gym and you completely were sore every single muscle, is it okay to take a com complete like week off as in terms of deload? Because I feel like we didn't get into talking about deloading and different strategies. I know there's like a complete deload where you just do nothing and just kind of go for walks and stuff. That's what I'd, I've done previously in the past and there's one where they recommend just reducing your barbell lifts or just doing accessory exercises. So what is your take on the term of deloading? I'm not familiar with the research on deloading. Uh, however, I wouldn't see anything wrong with that, especially if you've noticed that you've really overdone it, where at this point it's not just delayed onset muscle soreness, but, um, but you've gone a little past that and a potential injury coming up, then 100% taking that week off is going to be necessary to allow your body time to heal. But from a uh, muscle soreness perspective, it wouldn't hurt. Yeah, a lot of times people think that they're building muscle while you're in the gym, so they want to really push through that. And I know we talked earlier about psychologically, like, it sucks to take those days off, but really you're going to, I've noticed that I 
I've gained muscle after taking these deload weeks because you come back stronger and you're able to really push harder than you did the two weeks previous. Yeah, and that again comes back to the capacity and um, load recovery that we've been talking about. So if, again, you want adaptations to take place and um, get to that next level of whether it's strength gains or speed or whatever it might be, um, then again, if you get to that overreaching perspective, you also need to let your body catch up with that recovery so you can reach that higher point um, of training in the next session. And that will uh, come into the recovery, whether it's you're taking a week off or a couple of days. Again, it's very individualized. Everybody's different. So it's important to not put yourself in a generalized box. Um, everyone has kind of different uh, demands and goals that they'll individually address. So say someone was listening to us now, what would you give them if there's like three or five like main key points that they can implement to try to monitor their training and their recovery? Is there like a, like, obviously it's, it has to be individualized, but say they want to try to implement a self strategy to stay organized in terms of their recovery. So number one, make sure you're keeping track of, again, how much load you're putting your body through in these workouts, both from a reps intensity duration perspective and as well, again, marking um, how fatigued are you in that workout, your level of effort. Um, these things are important to consider. Did you sleep enough uh, the day before prior to that workout? So keep track of that um, from the weeks going into it. And then from a self-recovery standpoint, if you're recovering, one, listen to your body. If you went through unaccustomed exercise and now you have delayed onset muscle soreness, recognize that and implement some self-recovery strategies. That can be anywhere from uh, compression garments, ice bath, throw some ice into your uh, bathtub and some cold water and um, sit in that from 11 to 15 minutes. Um, again, the research is saying that the temperature should be between 11 and 15 degrees and sit in it for 11 to 15 minutes for best results. Um, and other self-recovery strategies, um, there's sports massage, but most related to that would probably be foam rolling. Um, just make sure you're not overdoing it and inducing more muscle damage. Um, and then the last thing we had talked about was active recovery. Make sure you're not uh, fatiguing yourself even more. So these are all things to consider. Hey, those are all great points. For those listening, in case you forget that, I'm going to write it down for the email when I send out the podcast. And in the description, we'll give you a little bit of takeaway. Now we're going to go into the questions from the audience. I know we had two or three from the Q&A. And the first one was, um, we use abs every day when we're walking, sleeping, breathing, eating. So Corey Kales was asking, can you train your abs every single day? Again, that will depend on your goal. So it's a tough question to answer. Um, if you're in the gym and you're training your abs every day, I mean, the ab muscles are the kind of the same as any other muscle. Or if, if you're overworking your abdominal muscles, you're going to have to give it time to recover, in which case maybe don't work it out every single day. Um, and if you... If you are and that's just your routine, then make sure you're giving it time to recover. But again, tough question to answer because I'm not sure what the context is. So let's say, for example, direct isolation versus just like a, like if you're, the abs are sore, you would try to not go to do another direct isolation. You would try maybe another form. For example, you could do like a farmer's carry or you could do a squat and still indirectly work the abs. I think could be a strategy to get that volume in if you really have it aligned with your goals. I would agree with that. I would say, again, you want to be functionally training as well. So I'm sure there are some instances where you would directly want to train those muscles, but from a functional 
perspective, even when you're doing, whether it's uh, overhead shoulder movement, the core is going to be contracting and having um, or forming your workouts in a way where these um, functional patterns are working together. Uh, I think that's important. But again, it's not uh, completely in my realm from an injury prevention perspective. Um, but from a sports background, um, we know that no system works in isolation. Everything works together. And making sure you're training those uh, functional patterns um, and implementing that kind of into your workout is important. So probably mix it up between isolation and uh, and working maybe farmers carries like you mentioned while also engaging the core you know I think the really big thing you hit there was functional patterns and getting good at the functional movements because a lot of times even when I started working out like six years ago like people would do like the you know you know the bros but like chest legs back arms and then you don't really consider the movement aspect you consider just muscles but when you shift your your mindset to training movement patterns that's when I find I noticed I stopped getting injured as frequently I was recovering better because I was training the body as a whole I was focused on things like improving my thoracic mobility I was doing back bends and stuff like that so just going over the the functional patterns we have like the base of primal movements we have our, our hip hinge our squat our overhead press our vertical press the horizontal pull and vertical pull and then just getting good at those movements and then and then working on your isolations afterwards is a good strategy that i found to be effective yeah addressing all of those i don't have much to add to that but definitely considering that again no muscle acts in isolation and in those workouts or movement what is your goal? And depending on your goal, how can you formulate your workouts in a way to move the best, um, move in the best way, injury prevention way, um, to kind of reach that sports performance goal? And the one last question we have from the audience was in terms of form during training, if your form isn't like 100% perfect, they were asking, is it okay to go up in the weight or should they master their form with a lighter weight? Because I find sometimes, for example, like I can't do a body weight squat if uh, without having like a weight in front of me because I need that that opposite balance whereas um, having that weight sometimes gives you a uh, more weight gives you a little bit more proprioception again that will be completely dependent on the sport I mean we have some crazy examples of marathon runners that are the best in the world and they have incredible knee valgus um, yet they're winning those marathons so whether you're gonna intervene with that technique or not in the case if that person is completely injury-free and winning marathons, you probably don't want to touch it unless something happens. Um, but in general, I can speak for tennis. I mean, you want a good technique to prevent injury. I mean, if, um, if you're serving, for example, and your impact point is way behind your shoulder, your shoulder is going to be taking the majority of that load. Um, as a junior, you might not feel that just because of um, all the tissue pliability that you have as a younger athlete. However, later on, when you don't have as much tissue pliability, that technique is going to be very important. So again, it really is situation uh, dependent. And I personally would advise probably having a good technique prior to going up in that load. Tissue pliability, that's pretty interesting. I haven't heard the term before, but is that what the evidence says aside from sarcopenia, why like athletes have their, their prime? They're like 26, 27, especially, in, I'm thinking basketball, but in terms of like, and why they, their performance starts to go down, is that one of the main factors for why we have the, our peak and then our prime in our athletic career and then it kind of starts to go down from there? I, I wouldn't say that's really related um, 
to tissue pliability, I would say more so from an injury prevention uh, or actually just an injury rate perspective. Um, we just know that in the younger athletes, yeah, you have more tissue pliability. Um, and then especially for shoulder, for shoulder injuries, for example. Um, and then as you get older and you mature, then that tissue pliability goes down and that's when potential shoulder injuries uh, start coming up. So that's what I can speak to regarding performance and peaks. I'm not sure. All right. Thanks so much for answering those questions. Anything else you want to tell the listeners on maybe where they can learn more about you and maybe how they can stay connected? Of course. So my Instagram page is The Sports Therapist. Um, feel free to follow or send any messages or questions, and I'll happily answer them and help you out in the best way I can. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you.